Well, good morning, and let me echo Stuart's welcome. Uh, my name is Kieran. Uh, I serve as an elder and the assistant pastor in training at Brosey Ferry Presbyterian Church. So it hasn't been a long journey for me this morning. Uh, let me uh, bring to you the greetings and the prayers of the saints um, over in the ferry. Uh, we are so glad to be able to partner with you in so many ways, uh, including this by being able to support you while you wait uh, for Andy to come in a couple of months. Um, it's On a personal note, it's great to be here, though it's sad that none of, none of you are here with us. Uh, last year, I was actually meant to come and preach for you, but half an hour, just as I arrived uh, at the church, half an hour beforehand, the service was cancelled, um, and we've been in lockdown um, ever since. So it's wonderful, though, to be with you uh, this morning. We're going to be working our way through the book of Esther. Thank you so much, Stuart, for um, setting the scene for us. Uh, but what's most important is let's, a- let's ask for God's help in prayer as we come to it together. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak clearly to us this morning by your Spirit, through your Word. We know that your Word was inspired by your Spirit, and we pray that he would now illuminate it for us. Help us as we come to it to understand it and to hear what it is that you want to say to us, your people, this morning. Pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please do keep open the passage in front of you, whether you've got a physical copy, you've got an app on your phone or your tablet, or maybe you can go into BibleGateway.com, just type in Esther 5 and you'll be able to find this there. If you were to ask people what was the turning point in World War II, I imagine a big part of the answer will depend on what country they come from. I think most British people will talk about the resilience during the Battle of Britain, how they um, held fast during uh, the Blitz on London and some of the other major uh, production centres across the nation. If you ask an American It will probably be when Pearl Harbor happens and the Americans finally got involved in the war. Uh, But I uh, googled this recently and most historians will tell you, from an objective point of view, it's the battle in Russia between the Germans and the Russians. If you push some of them to go even sharper, they'll tell you it's the battle of Stalingrad, though there is uh, differences of opinions on that. But they'll say, that was the big point in the war where everything turned around. Where before that moment, where the Germans seemed unstoppable, suddenly they were stopped in their tracks. And not just stopped in their tracks, but they were turned around and put back on their heels. Not everything was resolved in that moment of the war. A turning point does not resolve everything, but it proves a decisive moment. There's a definite shift in the attitudes and the countenance of all those who are involved. Uh, We've come to this part of the story of Esther. This is a book in the Old Testament of the Bible. And there has been an edict put out by Haman calling for the death of all the people, all the people of Jewish heritage. 
Because of his tete-a-tetes with Mordecai, he is organized by bribing the king for the genocide of the Jewish people. And so then the big question then for, for those who are reading this book, for those who are hearing this first, is, and for those people who are writing in the middle of this, will God be faithful to his promise to the Jewish people? His promise to preserve them and to protect them, to prosper them and for them to be a blessing to the whole world. If their life is under threat of death, how will he rescue them? And so that's where we come to in this book. And so uh, if you're one of those people who likes to take notes, I've got two points for you this morning. And the first one we see is the turning of the tables. The turning of the tables. So 5 verse 1, we see here, Esther put on her royal robes. Literally, she put on her royalty. This goes back to 4 verse 14. Um, This is where Mordecai is speaking to Esther. He says this to Esther. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you will come to royal to royal position for such a time as this. That royal position is the same word as 5 verse 1. And Mordecai is saying to Esther, you have been put into this particular position and maybe it's for the very reason that God is going to use you for the deliverance of his people, to protect and to preserve. Uh, We walk through this then. So Esther... She puts on her royalty and she goes into the king. Now, we learn a bit earlier in the book that no one is allowed to go into the king unless they are invited. If they go in uninvited, then they must automatically be put to death unless he holds out his golden scepter as an act of mercy and kindness to those who come in. That's why Esther was so fearful for going in. She hadn't been invited into the king's presence for for quite a while. And at this moment, she, she's worried and fearful. But she walks in, putting on her royalty. And he is overjoyed to see her and holds out his scepter. And if um, it's worth going back and reading through this book, you see that uh, the king, he's, he's quite wild in the way he acts. He's unrestrained. And when he sees her, and he, he thinks how wonderful he, she looks. Verse 3, you see this. He says, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom will be given to you. Now, instead of at this moment taking the chance to ask whatever she wants, she just says, can I have a meal with you and Haman? Remember, Haman is the man who has organized this genocide of the Jewish people. So they had this meal. Haman comes along. It's wonderful. At the end of the meal, the king once again says, What is your request, Esther? What can I do, even up to half of my kingdom? And again, she says, tomorrow, could we have another meal, another feast? Just you, myself, and Haman. Again, he says, of course that can happen. So Haman leaves. And Haman is overjoyed until he encounters Mordecai again. Verse 9, you see this. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. No matter what great position 
Haman finds himself in. The fact that one man in particular refuses to bow down to him seems to press that button deep down in his soul. That place of fear, that place uh, where where we see our greatest insignificance. And he says, this man refuses to do this. And it brings about this great fury inside him. So you see, we go on to verse 11. Haman goes to his family, he says, look at my life. Look at me. I am rich. I have a great family. The king honors me above everyone else. Even the queen invites me and me alone to the feasts with the king. But this one man, he just, I can't get him out of my head. He infuriates me. He drives me nuts. I need to deal with him. So here we see then that uh, his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends, verse 14, they say, have a gallows built 75 feet high and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go with the king to the dinner and be happy. That gallows, 75 foot high, that's higher than any of the other buildings within Susa. Susa is the city in which all of this is happening in uh, the empire. And so he's saying, the family is saying, build this gallows, build this high pole, this stake, larger than anything, and have him killed on this. Uh, So the culture this is in, the Persian Empire, this would have been an honor-shame culture. For Haman, he says he's been honored above everyone, but there's one person who refuses to give him honor. And so by having him impaled on this pole, hung on this gallows, high above everything else in the city, he wants him to be shamed and embarrassed in front of everybody. So you see that this suggestion delighted Haman and he had the gallows built. Uh, When I was working through this with our congregation in Brassy Ferry, uh, I was helping people to understand the kind of position that Haman had in his government. I I said that it was similar to Dominic Cummings. You probably remember him last year, the big furor of him driving to Durham and eye tests and who knows what else. But he was a man who was right in the uh, circle of authority and influence of Boris Johnson. Now, when we got to this passage, the week before, he had been outed from the circle of authority by the fiancé of Boris Johnson, Carrie Simmons. Now, we don't know all the ins and outs, but we know that there was a great battle for the uh, who could influence Boris Johnson and his decisions. And that's the kind of place where we come to here at the end of chapter 5. Both Esther and Haman have set plans, and the question is, who will succeed? Who is going to succeed? So when we come to chapter 6, we come to the decisive turning point in the book of Esther, and probably the most comical passage in the entire Bible. Now for us, when we read stories, when we watch films, we understand that the climax of the story, of the plot, always comes right towards the end. 
And then you get five minutes where everything is resolved after that moment, where things are sorted out. But a lot of the times, the way that Hebrews told their stories, everything was focused right in the middle. That's where conflicts were resolved. And we see that here in this passage. This is not only the decisive turning point, this is the very center of the book of Esther, this chapter. Uh, It's helpful to think of it this way. If you notice where we started our reading this morning, chapter 5, we've got the feast. After the feast, Haman goes to see his family and his wife. At the end of chapter 6, Haman goes again to see his family and his wife. And after that, there is another feast that they go to. So here, everything is structured to keep our eyes right on what happens at this point in chapter 6. So we come to chapter 6 and it reads, That night, this is after the feast, the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. Now, nothing normally good happens when we make decisions in the middle of the night. But here we come to the king and he cannot sleep. We don't know why he uh, asks for the book of Chronicles to be brought to him. Don't know if it's a case that he thinks that if he hears a history book being read, he'll fall fast asleep. Or maybe in his arrogance, he wants to hear of all the great deeds that have happened under his reign. But it's read out to him. And when it's read out to him, he hears and the story of how Mordecai had thwarted the plan, the mutiny that was planned to have the King Xerxes uh, overtaken and murdered. So he hears about this story that, we look, that is recorded at the end of chapter 2. And we see here then that he hears about this and he asks a question, how has this man been honoured? And he hears that he hasn't. And so then we come to this scene, a scene that's befitting of uh, faulty towers or some great sitcom where the king says, I want to honor Mordecai. And where's one of my advisors? Bring them in to me. Haman comes in. Haman comes in with this great plan to have Mordecai killed. The king Xerxes is inviting Haman in to say, to ask him, how can he honor Mordecai? So we here, we stand up, we stand above this and we laugh and we think, where is this going to end up? And so we, we hear this question from the king asking Haman, what should be done, verse 6, for the man the king delights to honour? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honour than me? We can imagine, can't we, Basil in Faulty Towers, or we can imagine Ross and friends asking, well, Obviously, who else, could, who else could he be thinking of but me to ask this question? Surely I'm the only one that the king would want to honour. And so then he goes all out and he says, what's the best way for this to happen? Do you know what? I want to be like a king myself. Look at the way, look at the things that he asks for the king to, to be done. He has a royal robe the king has worn, a horse the king has ridden, that has a royal crest on its head, then is to be led through the city. This is what is done for the man whom the king delights to honour. 
This whole picture is here is he wants to be seen as great and powerful in kingly and royal ways. And we get right to that bit then at verse 10. The king says to Haman, go at once, get the robe and the horse and do just as you were suggested for Mordecai, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. We can imagine that moment, can't we, for Haman, when he hears those syllables, Mordecai, you must honor the man whom you are seeking to kill, the one who refuses to honor you. And so we see this great reversal where Haman up to that point had been the one that was honored, where he had sought to shame Mordecai, now must honor his enemy. And so as we come to the end of this section in chapter 6 up to, we come to this point and we see that God still is in control of this situation. Um, If any of you know anything about the book of Esther, it's one of the things that it's famous or maybe infamous for is that God is never mentioned in this book. Is that because this was written by a group of people who had left behind their faith? No, I don't think so. I think this is kind of like reverse psychology. By not mentioning God, we start to see his fingerprints everywhere. Uh, This book of Esther is situated within the Bible. That might seem like a really obvious thing to say, but hear what what I'm saying. This is situated within the great storyline of the scriptures. Um, Earlier on in the book, chapter 2, when we first meet Mordecai, verse 5, it says this, Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish. Here it's talking about his great descendants. Kish was the descendant of a man named Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel. Then in chapter 3, when we first meet Haman, we find out that he is an Agagite. That is, he is the descendant of King Agag, of the Amalekites. There's a story way back earlier in the Bible when King Saul is told by God to go and defeat the Amalekites, the ancient enemies of the Jewish people. But King Saul doesn't do exactly what God said. He spares the life of King Agag and he And he takes plunder for himself, even though he's told to take nothing. And so here we come to this story repeated again. This great battle between these two people. The Amalekites, they were the ones who their very first encounter with the people of Israel is when the people of Israel, weak and weary from leaving slavery in the wilderness, were attacked by the Amalekites. And God said that he would always protect and preserve his people from their enemies. And here then we see God showing his faithfulness by rescuing and preserving his people from the threats of death from their enemies. God is still in control, remaining faithful to his promises. But also the other side of this we see On the other side of the coin is we see pride coming before the fall of Haman. Um, Have a look with me at verse 13. So Haman's returned back to his home, to his wife Zeresh, 
and to his advisors, his friends. So he tells them everything that happens. And his, his advisors and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. Literally, it's saying, before Mordecai, whom you have begun to fall, you will be defeated. We've seen the pride of Haman in this passage, where he thinks that the king would honor no one but him. But now we see that he is literally falling before his enemy. Pride comes before the fall. Those who seek to be against God's people will ultimately fall before God's people because God is faithful to his promises. Our second point this morning, then, is we see, ultimately, that Haman, whose pride comes before his fall, is then hoist with his own petard. And let me explain it like this. Uh, I don't know if you know, there's, a, there's a, a term in sociology called unintended consequences. So there's a couple of examples. Uh, in boxing, they introduced gloves because they wanted to make it a safer sport. The problem was when people were bare-knuckle boxing, they were causing great damage to other people's eye sockets or even to their own hands. So they introduced gloves, padded gloves. What's actually ended up happening is with padded gloves, especially as they've got bigger, people now punch harder than they did. And it's led not just to broken sockets, but to brain damage, longer-lasting damage. There's also something known as the Streisand effect. You might have heard of uh, Barbara Streisand. Uh, she, there was a man uh, probably about 20 years ago. He decided to do this project where he wanted to photograph the entirety of the California coastline. Uh, he took the pictures um, from above on, on a helicopter. Uh, before she made any intervention... There was probably only a couple of hundred views of his project on the internet. But she found out that her home had been taken pictures of. And so then she decided to sue this man. The moment this came to the public attention, where these pictures had once only been viewed a few hundred times each month, when she started to bring attention to it, hundreds of thousands of times each and every week, uh, these photos were viewed. So the exact opposite of what she was seeking happened. And this is what we're going to see with Haman's plan to have Mordecai killed. As the old proverb reads, whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone comes back on him who starts it rolling. Haman's, plan, Haman's plans unravel on himself. He is hoist with his own petard. He is impaled on his own pole. He is hung on his own gallows. So we come to chapter 7, and we get this second feast with the king and Haman and Queen Esther. And again, the king says to Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. And this is the moment now where finally she says what she wants. 
She says her life is in danger. The life of her people are in danger because of this edict, this edict where on a certain date, all the people of Jewish origin, of Jewish heritage, would be killed by their enemies. Have a look at verse, the king says, who could have done such a thing? And have a look at verse six. Esther said, the adversary, an enemy is this vile Haman. Esther's words are like staccato here, as one commentator said. They're like machine gun fire. It's this man. Uh, There's a painting uh, back in the 17th century, a guy called Jan Victors. Uh, At the time, people loved uh, doing paintings of Old Testament scenes. And he did a painting of this scene, where we have Haman, Esther, and King Xerxes. And in the picture, Esther is looking towards her king, her husband, and her finger is pointed at Haman. And the king, remember earlier on when we said he has, uh, he has this scepter, which he holds out, as an act, and whoever receives it, has an act, uh, they receive grace from him to come into his presence. But in this picture, Victor's, Victor has him holding the scepter as a weapon, as a club, something to beat Haman with, because he threatened the life of the king's wife with this edict. The king leaves, goes out, uh, out into his garden. You see that there in verse 7. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. And here, Haman just makes the situation worse. He goes down onto the couch and the king returns to see him. Look at that verse 8. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman, and listen to the language, was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. Here, remember the words of Zeresh the wife, who said, your downfall has begun before Mordecai, and here it comes to its climax to its nadir, to its bottom point, as he falls before Queen Esther. The king comes back in, and it looks like he is molesting her. He makes the situation even worse. And so the king seeks to have him killed. And you see there, verse 9, Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A gallows, 75 feet high, stands by Haman's house. He had it made for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, hang him on it. The irony of Haman's end is clear. The instrument of humiliation brings about his own shame. The instrument of death, which was intended for Mordecai, ends up being the instrument for the demise of Haman. And this is what Tolkien, Tolkien who wrote Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. This is what he described as something called eucatastrophe. And Tolkien was uh, an expert in fairy stories, not, those, uh, not the, the way that we think about them nowadays, but those old fairy stories of the past, those old great myths. And he said they all had this same consistency. That is, that at the moment of the greatest calamity, of the greatest catastrophe, That's when things would turn around 
for the good guys, for the protagonists in the story. And here we see this eucatastrophe right in the heart of the book of Esther. Everything turns around for the good of God's people. And so then ultimately, what we see here then is a paradigm. It's a pattern for the way that God deals with his people as he seeks to preserve and protect and prosper them. Um, Right at the beginning of the service, uh, Stuart helpfully read the call to worship from Colossians chapter 2. I'm just going to read verse 15 from that again. Here we see this, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, that is Jesus, that's God in Jesus, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You see, the book of Esther has the same consistency as the gospel, the very heart of the Christian faith. God, through the life and the death of Jesus, triumphs over his enemies. Our ultimate enemy in this life is the deceiver, Satan, the devil himself. And it's through the cross that God gains the victory. You see, for Haman, his instrument to silence Mordecai, to shame him, was this great gallows. The instrument of Satan, of the deceiver, was the cross. He sought to silence God, but it was through that moment that God won the victory over him, that brought shame to the deceiver. The victory of God comes through the defeat of his son. This is the great paradox right at the center of the Christian faith, of the good news. The book of Esther brings us right into the heart of that, where we see that God turns around all things for the good of his people. And so then where we're left then at the end of this part of the book is what we're called to rejoice And so this book was written for the Jewish people to celebrate at a festival called Purim. Uh, Purim was based on the events of this book. The people were to gather for a few days every year to celebrate the way that God had reversed the fortunes of the people to protect, to preserve and to prosper them. And so when they hear this story, you can imagine them, can't you, laughing as Mordecai is honoured and Haman is shamed when he leads him through the city. And you can hear the people rejoicing as they see God gaining the victory through the reversal of the fortunes of Haman as he dies on his own instrument of torture. Now, as we said at the beginning, this is the great turning point of the book. Not everything is resolved. The rest of the book goes on to see how the rest of the fortunes are uh, are reversed for the people of Israel. But this is the decisive moment. This is the moment when all the nation knew that the people of Israel, 
the Jewish people, God was on their side. And so the people are called to rejoice. And we are called to rejoice because we know this even more fully through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Death, the ultimate end and enemy of God's people, is defeated through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. So we rejoice because God has won. He is victorious over the enemies of his people. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, O Lord, help us to know that you have won the victory for us. The great turning point in all of history has happened on an instrument of torture and humiliation. The great turning point has happened in the empty grave. O Lord, lift up our hearts and remind us then that we have nothing to fear from our great enemy. But that ultimately we stand secure in the knowledge that you are faithful to your promises. That you will protect us, that you will preserve us, that you will prosper us. Lord, you are great, you are good, you are faithful. And we worship you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.